Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Hi everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Anthropotamus. Today we'll be discussing Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kimmer. Um, I'm definitely enjoying this book. What about you, Les? Yeah, and it reminds me a a lot of uh, some of the uh, more non-standard spiritual elements that I was taught when I was growing up. So let's step back for a minute. The reason we are doing this book is because I was actually assigned a portion of this book for my archaeology seminar course. And, you know, I read it and I was like, oh, this is pretty good. But we have so much reading going on during the semester that I couldn't really sit down and enjoy it. And I wanted to take the time to give this book the respect it needed and the time it needed to appreciate it. So I made less read it. And now here we are discussing it. I really love, right, this is very, I guess we could call this post-processual, right? Well, just on the, the note of post-processual, uh, I feel like, okay, so let, let me just rephrase. I was taught that post-processual was um, uh, spiritual without foundation and that uh, a lot of uh, post-processual um, anthropologists were they weren't necessarily connected to it. They were just kind of basing it on their feeling at the time. Right, and I was taught kind of the same thing. But that, I mean, yes, that's how we, especially for processual archaeologists, post-processual has a bad rap, and there are many archaeologists or anthropologists out there who claim to be post-processual, but come off as very spiritual with no, you know, scientific backing. Obviously, this author incorporates a lot of, um, it's very, you know, there's a lot of spirituality in it. It's a lot of spirituality, but she goes on to explain it, explain it using, you know, Western scientific methods. Yeah, she has a good balance. Yes. Um, and I, I really feel like that's how we should be seeing post-processualism and not to give it such a bad rap. Yeah, I mean, you know, the fact that I was taught to think a certain way tells me that I should probably question that and uh, look into it for myself. I think in one of my favorite chapters in this is when she's trying to learn the new language. And uh, I, since I did Audible and didn't read actually read it from an actual book, I don't remember which language it was. Do you remember? I can't remember the language. I think it was maybe she mentioned Navajo. I remember the word Papoy, which was... Um, the sound or the the force that uh, makes a mushroom rise from the ground oh i don't remember that (laughs) i thought that was really cool i thought that was like very very cool especially since you know they were they went into detail like uh, english doesn't have a word for the life force that makes things rise right and I, th- I think that one of the most interesting parts was ha- all the verbs they have. Yeah, 70% verbs or something like that. Right, but it really tells you how much language influences the way you perceive things. Right, to us a mountain is just a mountain, but right, like was it? Like to be a mountain, like that's that's a verb. I, I could have totally just made up that that definition, but basically everything is a verb because everything 
in a way is, I guess, you know, a creation. The way I understood it was that um, anything that was perceived as living was used, uh, you would use a verb for. And that included water, that included, you know, trees and other things. But if you had something like a table or an inanimate object, it wouldn't have a verb. And I might be wrong, but that's the way I understood what she was talking about. Hmm. Would make sense. I don't really remember because it was like a week ago when I got through that chapter. That's fair. But the point being, language, the words you use growing up influence the way you perceive your environment. Right? We have a lot of English has a lot of object words. So, I mean, you can't, you know, it's easy to not give objects respect when they're just things. Yeah. And that was one of the main themes, I think, of... Um... Don't know if it was chapter three or four or something like that, but like the fact that um, speaking English, just the way that English is structured, it it encourages it, it encourages us to view the world in a way that's not um, equal, right? Because they're not, we don't view um, other living things as equal to humans we view them as objects so an apple a living thing a seed of what will possibly someday become a tree that could provide shade etc is just a thing on the table a thing that you pack into um, a bag and that honestly a lot of people just leave on the counter to spoil right also her um discussing how we perceive our food, whether it's we take it from the wilds or it's bought in the grocery store, and how we are more conscious about how much we use and take when we see it as a gift. Yeah, that was interesting because gift marketplace is something that we've discussed before, and it's true. Like, I mean, just think about like I think everybody's had this ki this experience when you're a kid, and you're say with your grandmother or something like that. You know, somebody who's not your primary caregiver. You're going through. You have your own money, and you're gonna buy this, that, and whatever else. And then they say, "Save your money. I'll get it." So you think, "Well, I'm not gonna grab all the things that I want because I'm not paying for it." Right, like if you go to a restaurant with a friend and they say they're buying, so then you don't get that appetizer and extra drink. <laughs> um, it made me think about when I was doing the community garden, right? If you go to the grocery store, you just go and buy a whole head of lettuce. If you're growing the lettuce yourself, you don't pull the whole head of lettuce from the ground. You take the leaves that you need for your salad for dinner that night so that head of lettuce can keep growing. Um Right, you don't pull everything from your garden at once and store it in the fridge. You just leave it there. Uh huh. Yeah, that, I mean, it's it's a very wasteful thing. It you know that uh, is it's become so normal. Yes, and it, you know something that always bothered me when I was at the grocery store, and I didn't, I never really knew why I thought like this, but you know, you go buy corn on the cob, right, and then you go to the section in the produce aisle where you have packaged produce. 
I never, I, I, I rarely buy packaged produce unless it's like mixed lettuce. Cause I'm not going to buy 10 heads of lotus, lettuce to make a mixed salad. But like, I see the packaged corn on the cob there and I always felt very negatively towards it. Like, why am I going to buy packaged corn on the cob wrapped in plastic when I can just go grab the whole corn on the cobs? <laughs> I don't know. It just seemed mm-hmm. very unnatural to me to wrap this corn on the cob in plastic. So it's just, already wrapped. It's got its, its already own. wrapped. Why are we wrapping it in plastic? I remember one of my earliest memories is getting um, just, you know, corn on the cob with all all the trimmings on it and just learning to shuck it and pull off all the the corn silk and everything else and it it's a good memory for me and it was a lot of work and i i grew to dislike doing it for a long time but it just there's something about that experience that makes you appreciate it more yeah oh something i thought was was interesting when just talking about was it like boiling nuts and then the fat goes to the top of the water was it that's how you make almond milk or something and i was like oh my god is that how that's made <laughs> i was like is, because you don't right you're like how the hell is almond milk made do they just squish the nuts but i guess you boil it and then the fat comes up or or maybe that was almond butter i don't know but i was like what i think it was almond butter that sounds <sighs> that sounds more familiar i don't know but yeah or that whole process with the maple syrup making. I was like, oh, God, I can't believe you just went through all that for a little bit of maple. I've, like in the past, I've thought oh, maple syrup would be cool to make. I, I mean, I would I would like to learn how to do that from scratch. But listening to the process that they went through is like, oh, my gosh, that would take forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe not as long with modern, you know, uh, equipment and, you know, like freezers and... Um, gas grills or gas stoves something like that i feel like that would be a it would take a bit it would be shorter you know it's uh she brings up right this you know how christian beliefs right influence people influence people and how they see their environment right and it kind of made me think back to you know when we're talking about Chateau Hulyek and how this is when you first start seeing people view themselves as dominion over their environment rather just another part of their environment. But at the same time, right, religion influences people's perspectives as well as people's cultural upbringing also influences their own religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I don't see it as different because yes, you know, Christianity or Abrahamic faith is kind of like this idea that humankind is dominion over all, but at the same time, you know, God is the creation of all and all of God's creation should be respected. So why do we ignore that? Is that really a Christian or Abrahamic faith perspective or really a cultural perspective? I thought it was weird that she had she would teach her class and like it's a botany class, but like nobody like had grown their own garden or anything before. And I'm thinking like, why the hell are you in a botany class? You don't seem interested in that topic. Yeah, I mean, I've grown 
my own, you know, garden. We had a little garden in the, the backyard when I was a kid, so I learned how to, you know, take care of plants and whatnot like that, doing doing that. Um, that's why I started eating squash. I started growing squash, and we had so many that I just started to use them. You had never uh, had squash before that? I, maybe I had. <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, but yeah, I just, I mean, I just thought it was very weird. You have all these students in a botany class and I'm like, do you guys not see a plant before? Like, what? <laughs> like, where they're just like looking at the, going out into the garden, looking at all these plants, like they've never seen a plant before. I'm like, this is weird. That is weird. And that whole part when she was talking about where she was learning botany initially, like the science, the part when she was going to botany school and they were sending her up for classes and they asked her why do you want to learn botany and she said i want to learn why marigolds and primrose look beautiful together or something like that and then the uh the scientist said well that's not science and we're gonna put you on the right track so she had to learn that scientific processual version rather than her traditional knowledge but i think that was benefit i mean the guy was a dick but yeah but... um and i mean Right, that's science. You observe something, you want to find mm-hmm. an answer for it. I mean, that's science. But in a way, I think it was beneficial for her because it uh, forced her or in- further encouraged her to incorporate Western empirical thought with her own. And I think it really strengthened um, her observations. I agree. I, I think that the experience of learning scientific method and the uh, the processes associated with it are very important and they're good at what they're designed for but i don't i don't want to say scientific just scientific method right because there's different ways to approach you know scientific i okay yes we have the traditional scientific method foundation we all learn but it's more specifically western perspective i think it forced her using both her own indigenous perspective with western perspective helps strengthen her views and her observations so that she can better present her findings to different audiences and i noticed that too when i'm reading peer-reviewed articles let's say something let's say it's an article on i don't know i'm just coming up with a random topic genetics right but sometimes you're reading those topics and it's like yes i i understand you're trying to focus on something specific here but there's other variables outside of let's say genetics that have an influence that aren't being mentioned i i just i really feel like sometimes researchers are so focused on their specialty that they ignore the outside influences that can better support their observations but on my side i think i have a problem with looking outside of my topic too much yeah well that comes into our whole tangential nature looking I... at the topic <laughs> that we're actually covering <laughs> we have a, a tendency to go off on tangents yeah uh, but there's i mean there's a nice balance between right there's other fields that can help you can and i think that's the great thing about anthropology and why half you know my anthropology department it has ADHD is because it it allows us to look into different fields to create a a larger picture. It's necessary to do that, really. Yeah. I mean, when when you think about it, human experience expands across pretty much every discipline. Mm-hmm. 
and how we interact with everything else is extremely relevant. So if you don't look into multiple disciplines, you're only getting part of the picture. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and it made me think about uh, like the, the way, you know, indigenous perspectives are often ignored or being unscientific. It made me think about, you know, California wildfires and how, you know, they used to burn areas to prevent uncontrollable fires and we stopped doing that. And it's like, oh, look what happened. Another uncontrollable fire in California. <laughs> well, that actually reminded me of the duck part. I thought that was an interesting challenge that she was engaging in and trying to um, pull all of those nutrients out. So she used her scientific knowledge to figure out what the issue was and what was causing this to be a non-swimmable pond. But it it took more of that traditional knowledge to apply a solution and just using the plants themselves to soak up those nutrients and then cart those away so that she didn't have to try and dredge out all of the muck. Mm-hmm. A lot of her book also reminded me, uh, and this is something I heard a lot. I don't know if this is accurate. I heard someone had, I think told me this years ago, but that like the Peace Corps had gone to some country to try to help some village and they wanted to implement their own Western agricultural techniques. And all the villagers were like, no, that's not going to work. But of course, they forced their their Western methods on this village and completely ruined like all the crops. Uh-huh. <laughs> and finally, like, I think they just went back to the villagers' way of doing things. And it's like, you know, Western methods aren't always the best methods. They work great for the Westerners in the Western areas, yeah, but not every place is suited to that. Oh, I did love when it was talking about um, growing, was it growing corn, beans, and squash together and how they actually work well together with the soil and everything. And I was like, I was like, I wonder what would happen if I just threw a bunch of those three seeds in my backyard. (laughs) I think I think I might I might try to put a garden in my backyard and I I feel like it would take I feel like it would take care of itself because you know I kill everything so oh the whole it will take care of itself thing (laughs) right they complement each other I just gotta water it Uh, (laughs) when I have the time I actually enjoy gardening it's just a matter of getting me out there all right, so once again, we're discussing Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kimmer. You can find it on Audible, Amazon. Great book. Highly recommend it. Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.